This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Tuesday, November 28th. On the pod today, controversy over the use of foreign workers at a Canadian electric vehicle battery plant. The company says they need these highly trained workers to get the plant running. The president of Canada's largest private sector union is here with her take. Plus, we hear from a doctor who spent weeks working in Gaza's hospitals, but made the difficult decision to leave as the Israel-Hamas war went on. Then, the power panel is here to weigh in on two big political stories of the day. The updated Canada-Ukraine free trade deal and the bill in the Senate that would carve out some farm heating fuel from the carbon tax. The federal government is facing heat over the use of foreign workers at a Canadian battery plant, one that's costing billions of Canadian taxpayer dollars. Will the Prime Minister release the contract so we find out how many Canadian tax dollars are going to foreign replacement workers? His uncontrollable urge to make everything a partisan issue means he's not supporting the investments that are going to help in Windsor, in St. Thomas, uh, in Quebec, or elsewhere across the country. Nexstar Energy says it expects up to 900 foreign workers to help build the flagship electric vehicle battery plant in Windsor, Ontario, sparking outcry from some MPs and trade unions over the threat that poses to potential Canadian jobs. Now, the plant is currently being built and will operate with up to $15 billion in subsidies from the federal and Ontario governments, making it the largest investment in the history of Canada's auto sector. Lana Payne is the national president of Unifor. She joins me now. Lana, it's good to see you again. Thanks for having me, David. So we heard Minister Champagne say there's a lot of misinformation out there. We heard Radney Bostino say that Nexstar needs to sit down with Labour and clear the air about what's happening with the temporary foreign workers at this plant. What is your understanding of the role temporary foreign workers are going to play in the operations of this? Yeah, we've had a lot of discussions, obviously, with uh, Stellantis. We have a labor relations uh, relationship with them, and uh, our goal as a union is also to make sure that we represent uh, the production workers at that battery plant when it's completed. Um, Obviously, there has been a lot of confusion. I think it's important that the air is cleared, but I also think that this needs to be put into some context too, David, about how we got to this place. And, you know, we believe that you have to maximize Canadian jobs, both in the construction side and the production side of this facility. Um, But we obviously have some rules around these things. And uh, one of them uh, is obviously the the trade agreements that the Harper Conservatives negotiated themselves, which is causing a bit of a problem here. But but on this, like uh, we were told when this announcement was made, when the deal was done, 2,500, I believe, manufacturing jobs once it's fully operational, about 1,500 give or take, construction jobs. There is never any mention of 900 temporary foreign workers coming in to do anything. So they don't, do they come out of those totals? Are they in addition to those totals? How do they fit into this? Yeah, these folks are in addition, and they're also coming in through the trade agreement. So it is, uh, it is under the mobility uh, provisions of the trade agreement is our understanding. It's not temporary foreign workers uh, in, the, in the case of coming in under that program. Right. We have a number right. of programs in Canada. And I think, you know, if you want to be honest with Canadians here, and I would encourage politicians to do that, then, you know, a lot of these things were okay forever. 
and and our union, for example, argued repeatedly about you know bad trade deals. We did it during the Harper era, particularly because every other week there was a trade deal being negotiated that had an impact on Canadian jobs and and negatively, including auto jobs. And uh, and some of those provisions were 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 la- labor mobility provisions, which we're dealing with right now. Okay, so the 900 jobs, whatever the final number is on this, this is in addition to the 2,500 and the 1,500. So there's yeah. no loss there. But we do have people like Sean Strickland, who's with Canada's Building Trades Union, saying that the work these workers will do, will, uh, temporary farm workers, lowercase t, not through the program. Yes. He says it's going to cost Canadian skilled construction workers about 300 million dollars in wages and contractor fees. What's your reaction to that? Well, those are Sean's numbers, and I think I would agree with the minister and the statement that you just made earlier in in that it is important. And by the way, I've had a couple of conversations with Sean about this whole thing, so uh, to be transparent about Mm -hmm. that. And I do think it's important that the company sits down uh, with the building trades, has a discussion about the scope of this project. We all know we have never had a battery plant in Canada before. There is going to need to be some kind of expertise transfer that will have to occur. There's no doubt about that. Um, whether it's uh, 900 positions or not, then I think that's the, what you work out in, in those conversations. But uh, I wonder, because uh, this is a new industry for the country. This Absolutely is uh, the first of new. its kind here. Um, so there's no existing sort of plant to, to borrow a template from. So the argument coming from the companies is that this is proprietary information, so they need to bring in their people, or proprietary equipment, excuse me, to set it up and train. Do you buy that? Is there any way Canadians could do this work at this point in time? I I think that that's why the discussion needs to happen, David. For sure, there's going to be uh, expertise there and probably, uh, you know, uh, as you say, that kind of information that needs to be kept secret. But that doesn't necessarily mean Canadian workers can't be facilitating and working with this. We're also going to have to train Canadian workers to be working on this equipment uh, that is going to be here in Canada. So the reality is on any kind of industrial strategy, which is what our union has been fighting for, there are many elements of that. You get the government to invest. We're having momentum right now in this country, $25 billion. And this is what's concerning about this discussion is let's get to the facts because we are now playing politics, which with what is the biggest auto investment that we have seen in this country in 15 years. And it's important that we keep this momentum going. Right, but it's Stellantis right now. Uh, Do you know, will will we see similar arrangements with the Volkswagen uh, Gigafactory that's being built in St. Thomas? Could we see this with the Northvolt facility that's going to be built in Quebec? Do you think there are going to be other workers coming in from other countries to do a similar process of installation and training? I think they have their own expertise and they're going to want some of their own experts. How many of those folks are going to be needed? Who knows? I mean, I remember 40 years ago when we were building an oil, offshore oil industry in Newfoundland and Labrador, it meant that we imported expertise because we had to learn it. Um, some of this is installation that maybe Canadian workers can do. The reality is, is these things can be worked out through a conversation and figuring out the full scope of this project. This is a massive project. You can imagine right now there are, you know, 1,500 or 2,000 uh, construction workers. There's going to be 2,500 people working in that plant. It's huge. And we want to make sure that we do this right because we're going to have another battery plant. We have what's going on in Quebec. Huge opportunities uh, right now here for Canada. And I think the reality is, is what we've been seeing out of the Conservatives is a lot of playing politics which with a very, very important project for Canada. But are they wrong when they say that Canadian money is, is in effect 
subsidizing foreign workers. Well, these are these are this, these are short-term jobs. Let's just be clear mm-hmm. that the money is going towards the production of of uh, of of these jobs down the road. That's twenty five hundred permanent jobs, and also that battery plant was the linchpin for the auto assembly plant in Brampton and in Windsor. And I would say, get your facts right, and also be honest with people. Some of these programs are the very things that you created yourselves, and now this is coming home to roost. So even if it is, I mean, the subsidies are what got this plant there. I mean, there's the workforce and, and, you know, a bunch of things about Canada that are attractive for investment. But, you know, it was the federal and provincial money that made it competitive vis-a-vis the Inflation Reduction Act of the United States. Absolutely. So even if this is 900 jobs, 1,000 jobs, 1,600 is the high-end number we've heard. And, like, we need that specificity and clarity to completely nail it down. Your argument is it's worth it because of the long-term industry. What I'm saying is I don't know that it's 1,600. It, it I could think be that's nine, misinformation. You know, right, yeah. I don't know that it's 900. This is right. the speculation that's out there. But the reality is these would be very short-term positions in terms of, of technology transfer installation if necessary. And in the end, we're going to have a massive product, a massive plant that will employ the next generation of, of, of auto workers in this country, which is incredibly important. Lana Payne, National President of Uniform. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Another hostage release on the fifth day of the truce between Israel and Hamas. Israel confirmed Hamas handed 12 hostages over to the International Red Cross, and they are now back in Israel. This was in exchange for the release of 30 Palestinian women and minors held in Israeli prisons. Despite claims made today by both Israel and Hamas that the other had violated the terms of their truce, there is still talk of further extending the ceasefire. The current uh, hostage release pause uh, can be extended for another five days on the basis of the three-for-one swap between Israeli hostages and Palestinian violent criminals. As I said, we've also allowed for another 50 prospective Palestinian prisoners to be released if Hamas wants to continue releasing hostages, as we want to see. The CBC's Briar Stewart joins me now. She is part of our reporting team in Israel. So, Briar, what is the latest on the release of hostages and Palestinian detainees today? Well, tonight, 12 more hostages were released, including 10 Israelis and two Thai nationals. And among the group of Israelis, uh, almost all of them were adult women. There was a 17-year-old girl who was released alongside her mother. But it's believed still that there are about half a dozen or so children that are still trapped in Gaza, uh, including 10-month-old Kafir Bibas and his brother, 4-year-old Ariel. They were taken hostage alongside their parents, Yarden and Shiri. And the family has been told, or it's been suggested by the IDF, the Israeli military, that the reason why the family has not been released, or the children has not been released, is because Hamas does not have direct control of them anymore. They've been told that the family was handed over to another military group, another militant group. And so a little earlier today, the the friends and and relatives of the family uh, held a vigil in Tel Aviv, where they called on uh, the, Israel, the international community, and Hamas to, to return the children right away. And I talked to a cousin of Yarden, and I asked him what it was like these last 50 days, but also just the last five, where families were getting calls to, to f- figure out, find out if their children were on the list. And each time, they've been told no. Take a listen. You know, it's, it's a roller coaster of, of hope on the one side, and then disappointment. 
we are happy, we're overjoyed when people come back. And you know, so many people here, some of them we met uh, here in Tel Aviv, families of other hostages. We are so happy to see the pictures of them coming back. And we want everybody to come back. We want our family to come back too. Now, after the hostages were released, 30 Palestinians who were imprisoned in Israeli jails were as well. 15 of them are women and, and 15 are teenage boys. So, Briar, one of the conditions of this temporary ceasefire, in addition to the exchanges happening, is that more aid is supposed to be getting into Gaza. So, so where do things stand on the humanitarian side and what happens when the fighting resumes? Well, more aid is going into Gaza, 240 trucks a day, according to U.S. officials. But they also say that really 400 trucks are needed. Now, the very first flight, uh, U.S. flight with aid, landed in Egypt today. Two more expected later this week. But aid agencies and those working on the ground say it's nowhere near enough. And you can see the images coming out of Gaza. I mean, not only do you have large swaths that have been reduced to rubble, more than 15,000 people killed, according to local health officials, but there is an unfolding humanitarian disaster. I mean, we see images of people with plastic jugs and lines trying to fill up on water. And in fact, the World Health Organization said today that uh, they're very concerned about disease because of unclean water, poor living conditions. You have families that aren't sleeping in homes. They're sleeping outside in soggy tents in increasingly rainy and cold conditions. And what health officials say is that disease could be a bigger killer than, than the airstrikes and the artillery. And of course, when we're talking about the aid coming in, I mean, we're talking about how there's been this surge during the truce, but the truce is still temporary. There are negotiations going on today. The director of Mossad and the director of the CIA, along with Qatari officials, are in Doha discussing, you know, whether there could be an extension. Um, but at the same time, Israel is, is staying on track with its original message that it wants to eliminate Hamas. And in fact, today, the country's national security minister said that if Israel thinks about stopping the war, he will break apart the government because he doesn't think Israel should abandon its aim of, of, of eradicating Hamas. So, you know, aid is going in now, but, but once uh, Israel, you know, resumes its military operation, it's a much different picture. All right, Briar, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Briar Stewart in Jerusalem. All right, as we heard from Breyer there, part of the truce between Israel and Hamas includes allowing more aid convoys to get into Gaza. The UN says it has been able to scale up the delivery of food, water and medicine to its largest volume since last month. It also says it was able to deliver more than 120,000 litres of fuel, which hospitals in the region say is essential to stay operating. Dr. Ghassan Abu Sitta is a British-Palestinian surgeon who had been working in Gaza in the weeks after the October 7th attack. We've been keeping in touch with him largely through voice notes from Gaza as communications lines came in and out over the past seven weeks. Last week, Dr. Abu Sitta made the decision to leave Gaza, and he joins us now from London to share his first-hand account of the humanitarian situation unfolding in Gaza. Doctor, it's good to speak with you again. Thank you. It's good to see you. I, I believe the last time we spoke was over a very shaky video call. You were in Al-Shifa Hospital trying to provide care under very difficult circumstances, but now you're home. I, I wonder how it feels to be away from the war and back with your family in London. It's still taking time to kind of settle back in, and you're just overwhelmed with emotion. 
um, of guilt. Uh, you know, my patients are still there. Many of them I wasn't able to fully treat. Uh, others, uh, we couldn't get into the operating room. Um, many of my colleagues are still there struggling with uh, minimal resources trying to provide for what is now 35,000 wounded um, and with very few functioning hospitals and very little capacity left. So your mind always goes back to that place and uh, and to those faces that, that you left behind. You were there for, for weeks and weeks during the uh, intense bombardment and, and the ground invasion by Israel. What made you finally decide to leave? So there was a, a, a fateful um, air raid which left six, uh, on a mosque that left 60 dead and hundreds wounded. And they came to us at Al-Ahli Hospital, which had then become the only hospital functioning in Gaza City. And that night we operated into the early hours of the morning. I think we finished around 4.35. And we were told by the anesthetists that they had run out of uh, anesthetic medication and and that that's it that was there was nothing else that they can do uh, in terms of putting patients to sleep and really it was then that i decided that we needed i needed to kind of make my way south uh, having made my way south i discovered that in the south although some of the hospitals are still there um, they weren't better much better off in terms of supplies and in terms of my ability to operate as a surgeon um, I spent two days just doing dressing changes and helping out in the emergency department. And, and, and I felt that despite the colossal size of the catastrophe and the number of the wounded, the, the system has shrunk so much that there was actually a relative redundancy of surgeons because the bottleneck was in the operating room capacity. So the hospitals couldn't function for you to use your specialized skills. So it was time Absolutely. for it was time for you to go. Um, you, you, you've kept in touch with us through voice notes. One that uh, stuck out for me was how you described having to buy bottles of vinegar at the store across from your hospital to clean wounds because you'd run out of the medicine you need there. What What are some of the things that stick with you from your weeks in Gaza? Really, the most painful uh, parts were towards the end as we ran out of morphine and we ran out of ketamine and we were having to perform really painful procedures on uh, the wounded some of whom were kids without any anesthetic or analgesia uh, but we were having to do that because these wounds were beginning to get infected and 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 threatening the lives of, of these kids um, and it was a, a nine-year-old girl who i had to scrub uh, both legs and uh, uh, that were badly injured because her temperature had started to go up and she was showing signs of sepsis and there were stains of pus on, on the dressings. And I spoke to her dad and, and just said that, you know, I, we, I didn't have any ketamine, I didn't have any morphine. And it was going to be excruciatingly painful. But, um, but that un unless I was able to clean these wounds at least to buy her a few days, uh, she would be septic by the end of the day. Uh, and she was screaming, and it was just probably one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever had to do. 
you lost uh, colleagues and, and friends. Uh, we, we've heard a lot of reports uh, about uh, military strikes on, on the homes of medical uh, workers and aid workers inside Gaza and, and at the medical facilities themselves. I, I mean, how many people do you know um, that you lost in Gaza? So Dr. Midhat Saidam, who's a colleague that I had worked with in the 2014 war and a, a plastic surgeon, um, he was killed with uh, all of his family, his siblings and their kids when his house was bombed. Um, after I'd left, I discovered that uh, 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 one of the nurses at uh, Shifa's uh, burns unit, a lovely, lovely man, was always smiling and always welcoming, uh, was killed in the days after I'd left uh, with his brother. Uh, and towards the beginning of the war, um, a colleague that I'd never met, but we had, we were working on a research project together before the war. And he had been killed, uh, and I ended up having to operate on the two surviving children that he had, and, and that was extremely difficult because I'd met their dad on Zoom and, and their mother and their father had been killed and they were the only survivors and they were both wounded. And I just didn't have the heart to tell them that I knew their dad. You, you spent time at multiple hospitals, um, Al-Shifa being the biggest hospital in Gaza, and, and there's sort of the two narratives about this particular facility that's emerged during the war. You and, and other medical workers there dealing with an overwhelming load of patients and, and dwindling medical supplies. And then there's Israel's uh, assertion that this is essentially a command and control hub for Hamas. And, and in the last couple of weeks, they've released videos showing what they say are Hamas uh, gunmen bringing patients in there in the hours after uh, the October 7th raid and, and showing the, the tunnel system that is apparently underneath that hospital. Did you see any evidence of Hamas presence when you were there, doctor? Did you know about these tunnels? Was it a, a thing that was known and accepted and visible to you? In the times that I was there, there was no evidence. And I, you know, as my supplies would dwindle, I would go around the hospital trying to find bandages and, and blades and sutures from the different storage areas and the different operating rooms and and at no stage did I come across an area that was walled off to me or I was told that I couldn't get into. But more importantly, it's, you know, the Israeli army had embedded journalists with it when it started the, the land invasion. But they never took any of these journalists into these so-called tunnels. But also, what about the four children's hospitals that were destroyed and the cancer hospital that was destroyed? and the psychiatric hospital and the ophthalmology hospital that was destroyed. The Israelis destroyed, of the 36 hospitals in Gaza, only nine are left uh, because the rest had been uh, directly attacked. And so uh, it, creating a, a, a diversionary narrative about Shifa fails to kind of answer the questions about every other hospital that was damaged. Yeah, I, I believe some... Some journalists have been allowed into the tunnels uh, in the past couple of days, um, and, and they have corroborated the videos. Does that change anything for you? Uh, if this, if it, let's take it at its face value that there was a Hamas command and control center underneath Al Shifa Hospital, does that change anything so for you? Does does that devalue the life of the two thousand wounded that were there, or the 
the premature kids that were left to die, uh, does, that, does that justify the denial of treatment for all of the wounded that now could not use Shifa uh, and died as a result of their wounds because Shifa had been uh, uh, surrounded and, and, and completely neutralized as a, as a treatment facility? Uh, do, do Palestinian lives not matter unless they have no security value to the Israelis? I, I, I'm certainly not seeking with my question to devalue any life. I, I, I'm sure. just, I was just curious for your response to it because okay. I, I haven't been able to speak to you since then. So, look, just, just as a final point, there is a, a humanitarian pause, a truce as human beings are exchanged uh, between the warring parties um, it, that is allowing some aid to get in. You have left Gaza, but you're, you're not done with Gaza. What are you doing on this front uh, now that you're back in London? For me, uh, I still owe a duty of care towards my patients, and I'm trying to lobby uh, for a uh, for a, a, an increase in the humanitarian response to provide uh, to get humanitarian organisations to draw up plans for the treatment of these 35,000 wounded, uh, of 45 percent of whom are children, still needing medical care, uh, and also. The duty of care uh, is not just that they receive the treatment that they need, but also that they receive the justice that they deserve, them and their families and the other victims of this war. I think as a parent, um, if we uh, uh, brush under, if we sweep under the carpet the killing of 7,000 children in 40 days uh, because of political expediency, then we have finally turned our back on everything that um, uh, we had achieved since the Second World War in terms of international law, international humanitarian law, uh, laws governing the conduct of war. And we have uh, uh, basically said that we are comfortable living in a, such a world where such a horrific number of children can be killed. Um, and then the world that we will inhabit will be a much darker world than the one we have. Dr. Ghassan Abusita, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. The government is heaping criticism on conservative MPs for voting against an expanded and updated Ukrainian-Canadian free trade deal. On this side of the House, we can affirm clearly that we will stand with Ukraine with everything necessary for as long as necessary. As we saw last week, no conservative politician can say the same in this House. We are the only party that has stood with Ukraine, Mr. Speaker. Rather than trying to impose a carbon tax. All right. Conservatives claim they voted no over carbon tax language, but the Ukrainian embassy says there's no carbon tax provision in this deal. It doesn't impose one on Ukraine. And liberals say the conservative stance is echoing U.S. MAGA-style thinking on support for Ukraine. We're going to talk about that with the power panel. Vanguard Strategy CEO Michelle Cadario is here, as is Francoise Boivin, a former NDP MP and now a political commentator. Shachi Curl is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. And here with me in studio, Kate Harrison, vice chair at Summa Strategies. Kate, uh, let's start with you as our conservative whisperer in this let's conversation. Why are they sticking with the argument 
that this imposes a carbon price on Ukraine. They've had one since 2011. They want one to join the EU, and that's not what this trade deal does. Yeah, there, there is language uh, in the FTA around promotion sure. of a carbon price. Um, and I think there is a general principle to be upheld here, David, in terms of the inclusion of virtue signaling language, often with a domestic ideological lens in FTAs. Is that the right place for that kind of wording or language? We've seen it happen with other free trade agreements. That's not the argument. The argument is that it imposes a carbon tax on Ukraine. Well, the the conservative perspective on this, I I, I think, is, is rooted in the principle that Uh, This might not necessarily be the best avenue or forum for that type of uh, imposition. Um, We saw it happen with the Canada-Israel trade agreement. We saw it happen with the Canada-Chile free trade agreement. Uh, Language on, I'll say, feminist foreign policy, uh, uh, workers, etc., not discounting that, but it, it is the principle of whether or not we should be uh, including that type of language in an FTA to begin with, I think is one that conservatives are, are rightly taking issue with. At a macro level, uh, I think if the liberals are trying to draw the comparison to, to Trump and some mm-hmm. on the, the right in the U.S. that, you know, they're soft on Ukraine, they, they've picked the wrong party and the wrong issue to do that because the, the history and the track record is pretty clear in terms of conservative support for Ukraine. We saw it with Harper. We see the continuation under Polyev. So I think that has been a misread from the liberals in choosing this issue to try and draw that Trump comparison. M- Michelle, uh, what's your take on this uh, as someone who's worked for a liberal prime minister? I mean, do you think uh, th- they've missed the target here or do you think the liberals have found something? Well, I think that Polyev just stepped in it. I think that he made a mistake. He didn't realize what he was doing when he went out um, and actually hadn't read the agreement. And now he's just got his, his heels in the ground and he won't concede that he made an error. You know, it's, they, there's no imposition of any such carbon pricing. And, but on a more macro level, as, uh, as Kate was suggesting, so what is, are the Conservatives saying now? That they're going to be against carbon pricing all told? You know, that's a very different thing than the carbon tax in particular. Um, You know, they had some kind of an environmental plan, apparently, that has some kind of uh, recognition of carbon pricing um, for large emitters. They they seem to talk about that. This would seem to say that um, that that would be a no-go. And moreover, how small of a world are they trying to make in terms of our free trade agreements if we're not going to be entering into any kind of trade packs with countries that are actually doing anything on carbon pricing? There goes the European Union, and there goes a whole other lot of countries who are taking some responsibility on that. I'm quite surprised. Francois, what's your uh, read on this one? Um, I do agree that Pierre Poilievre stepped uh, stepped. Uh, and it and, and gave kind of a a second second win to the the, the liberals since last week because of that uh, that vote on the free trade agreement with Ukraine the the use of the terrorism uh, uh, word and his problem right now is the the extreme way of of talking about it if if don't forget it was just second reading to send to committee. There were ways to say we are a bit suspicious. We we don't trust the liberal. Uh, we will be uh, uh, verifying a few things during committee, uh, and on the uh, article by article, we might uh, have some changes. But no, they came straight to the extreme. This is imposing. This is the liberal doing this. This is, and and. He doesn't need to do that. He's, he's, he's riding high in the polls. He doesn't need to use a falsehood uh, or, or things that are not proven or are little mistakes sometimes. Maybe somebody read wrongly the, the, the bill. 
and said, oh, there's uh, there's a carbon tax. I mean, now I know what to do if I don't want them to support anything I do. I'll just introduce the word uh, carbon tax and you're sure that the the conservatives will just go against. So it doesn't sound serious and and that could be a a problem for them in the long run. Okay, Uh, Shachi, uh, your take on this and then I want to get to another misstep today, but this one involving a liberal. Go ahead. So it's fascinating and it's, well, frankly, it's baffling around what Pierre Poliev is trying to do with this. But, you know, they say in politics, uh, it's nothing like taking a, a victory and turning it into a defeat. Uh, in this case, there's, there's a few elements here. First of all, it's really important to point out that, in fact, and this, this is across the political spectrum, Practical support for Ukraine is actually pretty milquetoast. When you ask Canadians what should we do to support them, yes, send humanitarian aid, stand with Ukraine, Slava Ukraini, all of like the, the good feeling stuff. When it comes to practical support, things like sending weapons, sending money, sending military and, and lethal uh, equipment, well, Canada can't really do that in part because uh, we don't. We literally don't have the stuff to send, but also because uh, there is a reticence to do it. Now, it is true that that level of reticence is is highest among the conservative base. But, you know, this is one of those instances where Pierre Polyev has a chance to talk to his caucus, talk to his base and say, look, do you want to be in government or not? Do you want to look like a party that's ready to lead or not? And we can talk about the principles of language within trade agreements, and, and I take that point. But what they've done is they've opened a door to be attacked on the principles of not standing with friends at a time's friend of need, at, at a friend's time of need. And that's the bigger problem. That's the bigger problem politically for the conservatives here. Uh, they've they've basically just opened a door for people to throw pies in their face. Okay, I, I, I want to touch on, on something that, that Kate brought up, where she talked about the sort of the, the mega comparison uh, that, that the mm. liberals are going for there. I want to show you a tweet. Liberal MP Ken Hardy posted yesterday linking Pierre Polyev to the mass shooting in Winnipeg. It said, beyond troubling to see another mass shooting in Canada, now in Winnipeg, and we've lost so many police officers. Might it be the antisocial, burn-everything-down, far-right attitude we're seeing creeping in from the U.S. and the creep on the Canadian side? Pierre Polyev, question mark. Now, he's asked about that today by Canadian Press, said he stood by it. Then he spoke with Karina Gould, the House Leader for the Liberals, and look at this tweet that came out uh, later today. Uh, a reaction to the reaction to my post yesterday, it was unacceptable on my part to leave any suggestion of a direct link to the tragedy in Winnipeg. There was not. For that, I apologize. So, Kate, uh, is that just a case of clumsy wording, <laughs> going too far, getting it completely wrong? What do you make of that? Yeah, it was more than a suggestion. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the new uh, reaction to a reaction is kind of, sorry, not, I, I'm sorry you're mad. Right. Like, I'm sorry you're so upset as opposed to being, you know, genuinely uh, remorseful about this. I mean, to to use a a domestic tragedy and and use it as a point of division is is a low point. I I think we're kind of at that point in the cycle, frankly, where, um, you know, people are a, a bit desperate. The liberals are a bit desperate at this point in terms of trying to make that comparison stick. Um, 
there might have been some merit to it uh, had they not tried this line of attack in 2019 with Andrew Scheer and 2021 with Aaron O'Toole. I think maybe Canadians would be a little bit curious about comparisons that could be drawn. Um, but because we've seen that playbook, uh, you know, occur so many times, uh, it's just it's falling on deaf ears. Yeah, the Trump comparison has been used so much. I, I, I don't know how, how much effect it <laughs> carries uh, anymore. But you know, you know, Michelle, we've seen a lot of things like this. I mean, Ken Hardy, the Liberals I spoke with, are not happy with Ken Hardy uh, for doing that. We've seen the Conservatives, though, every time there's a violent crime incident in a major city, trying to link that to liberal policies when we don't know what's going on. But this one uh, kind of went over the line at a time when they seem to have found their footing with a line of attack, and, and Ken Hardy kind of threw some tax under their feet, it seems. Yeah, Ken Hardy stepped in it. You know, he, uh, he, he was wrong in what he said. That was unfair. It was uncalled for. Um, and, uh, and he finally um, withdrew the comments and, uh, and apologized. Would have been better if it was uh, never said. It would have been better if it was, if it was retracted a little bit uh, more quickly, without question. Um, you know, I think that, uh, that the last couple weeks have, um, you know, maybe it gets a little silly season in Ottawa. Uh, you know, and I think that, uh, that um, you know, people are jumping on, you know, Mr. Polyev kind of quoting off of Fox News uh, when uh, we had the incident at the border, um, rather than, uh, you know, waiting to, to see what the facts were. And I think that they tried to, uh, to extrapolate that and, uh, and it burned them. Um, and uh, so they had to retract. And quite frankly, they had to kind of uh, deviate from uh, a message that they were actually going strong on. And so, you know, Ken Hardy kind of crossed them a day. Yeah, Francois, I, I don't know. It, it seems like the political culture here now is that whenever confronted with a problem or a challenge, they, it's not about solving it. It's about pinning it on the other guy and blaming them for mm-hmm. it, right? It just seems that that's where we're going uh, politically or where we are politically. And what, what's your take on that, uh, Mr. Hardy? Uh, exactly. And it's kind of sad in a sense because his tweet initially, I'm sure, wanted uh, to make everybody reflect on, on the tone. That was the main core of his tweet, was to say... Uh, it's socially, it's creeping very slowly, and it's coming north. And, uh, and not only the Americans have the uh, monopoly of being, uh, uh, and, and, uh, I was going to say a word that you don't say on TV, but anyway. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> um, no, I won't. I won't. I won't. Um, and, 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 and because he pinpointed and, and, and kind of blame, put shift the blame on one person, yeah. it permits that person and everybody around on either side of the aisle to say, well, no, we don't think that uh, Pierre Poiliev is responsible for what happened in Winnipeg. The same way I never thought that Justin Trudeau was responsible for things that happened in Toronto or elsewhere or, or so on and so forth. I think it's a lesson that should be learned by all politicians because, yes, we all collectively want to reflect on, on the tone that is taken in a lot of conversation sometimes, be it uh, virtual or in reality in front of real people, um, that it has an impact. And uh, you, don't, you don't achieve that by doing exactly what you, 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 you go against. And, and I right. think that's the mistake he made. And again, he said, I'm sorry, not sorry. So I'm not so sure because I'm pretty sure a lot a lot of his colleagues on on the bench kind of think exactly the same thing. He said out loud what a lot of them think 
maybe uh, without saying out loud. Well, well, well Shachi, if he wanted to draw attention to what he thinks is a changing social tone, the tweet was fine right up until he typed the words Pierre Polyev, question mark, right? <laughs> like, you know, you, you, you don't do that That's because it. clearly, that, you know, he has nothing to do with that happening in Winnipeg. J- just uh, wrap us up quickly on... on whether there is an audience for this mega messaging yeah, that, that, that that's the, the key here. going with. Yeah, that, that's the issue. Ken Hardy should have deleted the tweet, apologized unequivocally, moved on, whatever. It's, it's now a thing that happened, just yeah. like 18 things happen every week, it feels like, in, in, in Ottawa around these things. Um, <laughs> I would not be so uh, quick to necessarily dismiss the MAGA line of attack. There's a reason it was used against Andrew Scheer. There was a reason they tried it, I think, less effectively against Aaron O'Toole and why they intend to to keep using it against Pierre Polyev. Number one, this is a year where we are actually seeing the potential return of Donald Trump in, in a very big way, potentially as Republican nominee. So it, it draws it into a much sharper focus. He's less the loser licking his wounds in Florida and, and possibly back in business, so to speak. Secondly, the Liberals' strategists uh, and those who are getting ready to fight this election, if they are even like half awake, they've already kept the receipts around things like uh, Polyev's uh, praise for the convoy protesters, calling them heroes at a time when a lot of the country was frankly quite aghast at some of the behavior that they were displaying at, at the time of, of, the, of the occupation, if you want to call it that, not a violent one, but a, right. but a literal occupation of Ottawa. So the receipts are there, and the Liberals, I think, are going to try again, in part because it's been successful, but also in part because they're going to have to play dirty. They're on the defensive. They look like a tired government. They're acting like a tired government. People are now starting to look at Pierre Poiliev in a more in a in a in a in a more serious way. They're looking at him as a potential prime minister. We, we're seeing that obviously in in the vote lead that right. keeps being reflected poll after poll. They need a way to tear him down and define him, and they're going to really try to throw everything at him. This is just one of the hammers and the axes that they're going to attempt to throw. The Conservatives are forcing MPs to vote on a motion to force the Senate to pass a bill that will carve out some farm heating fuel from the carbon tax. Common sense Conservatives have a bill that has been passed by this House that would take the tax off. The Prime Minister has deployed his carbon tax minister, to pressure senators to block that bill. It's somewhat ironic that they're telling us to let the Senate do their work, yet they're trying to adopt a motion that would pressure the Senate to do what they want. They seem to stop at nothing to try and and, and get what they want, including bullying senators, independent senators. Okay, so last week, the conservative leader in the Senate apologized for bullying independent senators over this bill, one of whom received threats that are still being investigated by police as a result of social media posts. So what are the political optics around this bill and this fight? The Power Panel is back for that. Kate Harrison, Shachi Carroll, Francoise Boivin, and Michelle Cadario. Uh, so, Michelle, this is an interesting piece of legislation because it's a private member's bill that seeks to expand tax exemptions. It's gone through the House it's there in the Senate. If it passes, it will be imposed. Uh, I mean, is there a validity to the Conservatives' argument here that the House should say, get going, Senators? Well, it's um, if they wanted it to actually get going, perhaps they could have, um, you know, worked w- within some diplomacy. You know, um, 
you know, the senator who had passion for this issue, there's no excuse for, for bullying those senators. Um, and his displays of, uh, his displays have actually just distracted from the actual issue. Um, and instead, we're talking about the behavior of adults, <laughs> supposed adults, uh, in the uh, <laughs> chamber of sober second thought. Um, and, uh, you know, one senator mansplaining and hearkening back to the good old days when they could settle things over a beer. Um, and that's what the, the conversation on this issue is about, instead of the actual substance of it, which actually did, as I understand it, get a little bit of liberal support as well from some liberal MPs. So, you know, I think that they've done themselves an incredible disservice um, at the Conservatives if they actually wanted to see this passed and getting through. Um, you know, I am a believer that uh, the House of Commons, the elected House of Commons, um, should reign supreme. I, yeah. uh, you know, and I really do think that the Senate, um, it, it's there in our Constitution, so it has to do its, its work, but I think that that work is about just some due diligence and some, some reflection right. and that. Uh, but it should not ultimately hold up a piece of legislation, in my mind, that is passed by an elected body. Right, and, and, and Kate, I guess there's some disagreement as to whether they're holding up or kind of doing their job yeah. and assessing it and looking at amendments. But the, the overwhelming majority of fuels and, and emissions for the farming sector is exempt. Yeah. It's just a small bit that's mostly used for, for drying crops. But, you know, as Michelle said, the House of Commons should reign supreme, and they passed this. And yes. the Liberals have done a, an exemption for home heating oil that applies across the country. It's going to be tough to say no to this, is it not? Completely. And the, the Liberals really opened the, the door and the opportunity for the Conservatives to use this as, right. a, as a wedge when they did the carve-out um, three or four weeks ago now. So uh, this this idea that this is, you know, a, a surprise or, you know, the, the Senate, you know, um, would be applying some kind of truly independent lens on this. I, I struggle with because we see independent senators kind of continually pass liberal uh, liberal legislation. But I I, I do think it's uh, but it is a liberal government. Going back to that point, that, yes. you know, once it gets there, you know, the Senate shouldn't be obstructionist. Should not right? be obstructionist. Yeah. And I think when we're having this conversation at this time um, about the real cost consequences associated with with the carbon price, uh, they should observe what's happened in the House and not take too sober a look at uh, at this. Uh, do the work that's needed, but there's no need to, to be obstructionist. And again, the Liberals opened this door to have this conversation when they started making specialty carve-outs. Right, but, but Shachi, uh, you know, like with the, the oil exemption, it, it, there's a time limit on that, and there is uh, an incentive in place to switch, to, to go to heat pumps. There's incentives and programs to help farmers who use propane and gas to dry the crops to switch to less emitting and, and more efficient measures. But you know, that it kind of doesn't change the politics around this particular situation, right? What a difference two weeks makes. Two weeks ago, the Liberals were on the defensive on this issue over the carve-outs. We were all talking about how, how uh, inexplicably baffling, I've been using that word a lot today, but a lot of <laughs> politics is baffling <laughs> these days. I don't know what's in anybody's head. Uh, but, you know, r about bringing in that carve-out, how it was going to create a, a slippery slope of demands for additional carve-outs or exemptions, time-limited or not, uh, and people across the country saying, what about my sector? What what about my industry? What about my household? What about my province? So two weeks later, uh, you've got a situation wherein we're not talking about that anymore. And if you are a conservative strategist, that's what you that's where you want to keep the heat. That's where you want to keep the pressure. Instead, we are talking about 
a, a motion, a vote on a motion to make this, and 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 now uh, Canadians have tuned out. They've 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 lost that conversation, and the heat and the pressure is off the Liberals at least for the time being on this particular issue. Right. When they had them on the run, this is the football equivalent of a pick six or a quarterback sack, folks. It's just <laughs> like I don't get it. I do not get I know Francoise will like that yeah. one. Well, you know, Francoise, uh, you, you may like that analogy, but as a former New Democrat MP, I know you're no fans of the Senate. Uh, <laughs> I we, was we, going to. We, yeah, we, we should. Without that disclaimer. Right, and we should put out that, look, the House can't force the Senate to do anything, right? It's its own thing, and so this vote, even if it passes, it just sends a message of frustration. It, it's not directional. Um, but, you know, what, what does, should Justin Trudeau and his government do if the Senate eventually passes this or sends it back? Because it does have the approval of the House of Commons. Well, they, they will have no no choice. I mean, democracy. If you're if you truly believe in democracy, you have no choice. But I cannot fathom in in the twilight zone I'm living in because today conservatives are saying, "Hey, bad Senate, uh, you shouldn't be stalling a piece of legislation that we truly adopted in the House of Commons." I'm all behind that. And not so long ago, I, I think it was 2019, that the Senate was blocking a liberal piece of legislation. C-69. And exactly, C-69 on the uh, environmental access uh, uh, criteria or, or whatever. The no More Pipelines but, Act, as they called it. Yeah, that's... Uh, exactly. That's so, you know, w that's where they lose me all. I mean, if you're going to have... A, a principle, well, act accordingly. Don't uh, don't use it just when it suits your purpose, because that's when folks just just start not believing in politics no more. So yes, the Senate should look into the bill, but don't play game with it because mm. you're not helping a person like me like you more every day. You do that. Well, Francois, no offense, so I'm not sure you're their target audience with this particular thing. <laughs> I uh, but, know. but look, here's something I'm going to stay with you because this is something that you very well may be the target audience for. I want to just talk about what's going on with National Pharmacare uh, because, you know, the, the clock is ticking on the confidence and supply agreement to have legislation for the framework for the creation of Pharmacare, not full Pharmacare by the end of the year. And there's a lot of talk about that maybe being delayed. This is what Karina Gould said about this today. We're working with the NDP uh, on this, but uh, you know I'm quite confident that we'll land it. I don't think we're going to get it passed by the end of this year, but we'll definitely keep working, and those conversations are productive. So, so Francoise, positive noise from the Liberals and the New Democrats that talks are going well and they think they can land on something, but Karina Gould saying we're not going to get this passed by the end of the year. Big deal, small deal, no deal for the confidence supply well, deal? What do you think it does? <laughs> For me, it's a big deal, again, because I'm a person of, of, of my words and, and contract and agreement. And let's face it, that was not the agreement was to have one adopted by the end of the year. We all agree it's impossible, not in this parliament, not with the games being played. There's no way in hell that in three weeks they would adopt such a piece of legislation. So it was written in, in right. on the wall, and I'll let Shashi explain why the NDP and the Liberals do not want an election right now. <laughs> so let's face it, that is the bottom line. I mean, if nobody understands that, that is why. So just the tone, it resembled in 2004 when 
us and the, the liberals right. and the NDP had some type of agreement and the tone was nice and we were told don't be aggressive with your friends from the NDP we've got an agreement with them so okay I'll be nice so it's a bit the same and and they just pushed the election a bit further down right. we'll all go for Christmas or whatever you celebrate and be happy there's no election I, I'll get the shot in just a second but Michelle you know if the liberals and the NDP can agree on what the legislation looks like and maybe even get it tabled, it's not passed, so it doesn't quite meet the letter of it, but would that satisfy the spirit of it and keep everybody kind of happy and going? I think so. I think that even if they kind of work out a framework and, uh, you know, they can't even necessarily get everything drafted, um, that, uh, that that would be the spirit. I think, you know, I think that part of the agreement is just to see progress. Um, you know, Minister Freeland was pretty clear. Uh, in laying out the fiscal framework that, uh, you know, it doesn't seem that there's room for any big national no. uh, program um, in the near term. But, uh, but that doesn't mean that there can't be progress in terms of developing a framework. Shachi, do you think this will, like, uh, with all due respect, I don't think you need to be the president of the Angus Reid Institute to tell us why they don't want an election right now. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, you, uh, like, I, I think you can tell us how their voting base might feel about this, right? If there's a delay, do you think New Democrats will tolerate that, because you saw at their convention, they said this was their red line, right? So do you think it might trigger with their constituents? Oh, the thing about red lines. Okay, Francoise, cover your ears. <laughs> Nothing I say is going to give you any comfort. Uh, the NDP has been stalled at 20% or lower for the last four years. Now, the issue of pharmacare itself is an excellent and important one to discuss and actually advocate for. One in five Canadians is actually either splitting pills or skipping doses or just not filling prescriptions because of an affordability and access issue. So let's just take it back to the 50,000 foot view and say there is a crisis that needs to get addressed. But it's not going to be addressed because uh, in, in the short term there's no pressure for it to be addressed. Uh, agreement or no agreement because the NDP's really got nothing to beat the Liberals with on this point. So we've already established that people don't really want an election. We've already established and we talk about every week how if an election were called, it would not be good news. Um, uh, exactly. The account went down so low. Oh, I think uh, Michelle might have just lost right. Go ahead, Chachi, just finish Okay, no, yeah, yes. No, no, I uh, think we're having a technical issue there. Anyway, go ahead. All good. So, you know, basically, not only are Canadians not all that keen on an election, if one is called, it's not going to be good news uh, today in the short term for the Liberals. But frankly, there's also a problem for the NDP. There's this new battlefront that's been opened up where working class, uh, in Britain they call them red wall voters, now have a choice between the Conservatives who are pursuing right. them yeah. very, very hard and the NDP themselves. It doesn't help when the leader's walking around with Versace tote bags, but that's a whole other thing. In the meantime, <laughs> there isn't a lot that the NDP can do except for continue to say, we really, 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 really mean it this time uh, because uh, the, the politics and the calculations right. around an election do not suit uh, the, the new Democrats at the moment. So, Kate, given that clear summary of the lay of the land, even if it doesn't meet the letter of supply and confidence, 
they're going to let this roll over, don't you think? Yeah, it, this is too important yeah. uh, to the NDP to, to get wrong and to, to rush out. I do think that, you know, there's a bit of a clock ticking on this. We saw at the NDP convention earlier this fall, members clearly say they wanted to see action on this issue or, and if it doesn't, uh, you know, meet the bar, then they're okay to see that supply and confidence agreement go away. They've basically given right. Singh permission to, to do that. So uh, it's far too important an issue for the base. I think it's far too important an issue on which to draw a contrast between the NDP and the Liberals. So there is a clock ticking, but it is better that they get it right uh, than, than to rush it because I, I definitely see a scenario where no matter what happens, they fall short and the SNC is done. Doesn't mean the government's going to fall, um, but I think uh, if they're going to choose an issue to draw that contrast, it ought to be this one. But not before Christmas, you don't think? Heck no. Yeah, yeah. No. that alarm goes off, you hit that political yeah. button. All right, I want to thank you all. Thank you to the Power Panel, Michelle Cadario, Francoise Boivin, Shachi Curl, and Kate Harrison. Okay, and just a note, it's almost December, and we're preparing for our Christmas holiday shows already. And for one of those shows, we're going to assemble a group of our CBC journalists to answer your questions about the top political stories of the year. So send us your questions. You can email us. It's politics at cbc.ca. What did you think was the biggest political story of the year? What do you want to know about? What it's like to report on politics? And what political stories are you going to watch for in 2024? Again, that email is politics at cbc.ca. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.